Matthew chapter 22. The story is told of Christian Herder, who was the governor of Massachusetts running for a second term in office. And he was, you know, on his campaign trail, traveling and speaking at places. But on uh, one afternoon, he was there at a Sunday church potluck where he was greeting some of the people at the church there. And there was a small church potluck. And so barbecue chicken, uh, it was the works, you know, and they were out there having a great time. But when... um, when it came to go through the line to get his food, the governor uh, saw the delicious chicken and the lady that was handing out the chicken, she put one little drumstick on his plate and looked at him and, and he said, ooh, that looks delicious. He said, you know, I, I can go for two of those. And she said, you get one. And, and he was kind of, you know, jo- chuckling a little bit. And, uh, and he says, is there any chance I can get another? You know, and she says, nope. Uh, everyone gets one piece, she said. Um, and a little bit of back and forth. Uh, but then he thought it'd be kind of funny. He said, um, you know, he said, do you know, I'm the governor of the state. And her replies, I'm the lady in charge of chick- chicken, take a hike. <laughs> well, authority, who really has the authority? Uh, it's funny, have you ever noticed the human nature thing to jockey for authority? Like who's really in charge? Some of you at work deal with those kinds of things. You know, somebody who wants to be seeming like they're in charge, or maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but... Um, That's kind of what happens with human nature. And when one who has real authority comes into the area, then then it can challenge those who are thinking they're in authority or uh, think they're in charge, but maybe they're not. But we have that kind of a situation here in chapter 22 with Jesus. Jesus is on the scene. And uh, it's interesting because the people already are saying stuff like, wow, he speaks as one having authority, not like the scribes. Um, And so now the scribes, the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the religious leaders and, you know, uppity ups, they're all kind of feeling a little bit intimidated because the crowds are gathering around Jesus and they're sensing that Jesus carries himself with authority. And so now they're threatened. Who really is an authority? And so, you know, they're trying to, you know, do everything in their power to show that Jesus is not authority. We left off last week in Matthew chapter 21, um, you know, um, in uh, verse, right around verse 23 in the previous chapter, they, they said, you know, the priests and these guys said, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, one of the things about that question that's interesting is those of you that have been around authority or have authority, you know that really authority is not as much given have you ever noticed that? You, I mean, you can do that. Sometimes if you're in the military, there's authority given, but sometimes it has a way of kind of showing itself, revealing itself that that was poorly given authority to someone who really didn't have authority of any kind, but they were trying to you know, get their friend up in the ranks or something and they knew somebody or whatever, and it, it starts to kind of shake itself out. But I've noticed in, in life, there's people who have authority and then there's people who don't. And, um, and some people are uh, gifted with that leadership kind of thing and others are not. And Jesus just naturally, of course, has this authority. But these people ask the dumb question, you know, um, by, by, you know, what authority do you do these and who gave you this authority? And so remember Jesus said, you know, I'll tell you what, if you answer my question, I'll answer your question. And he gave them the question about, you know, the baptism of John. From whence was it? Was it from heaven or was it of men? And they knew that Jesus had him because if they would have said John the Baptist was of men, well, the crowds would have, would have um, you know, um, 
been upset because the crowds believed John and followed in the multitudes John the Baptist. So they would have had a revolt on their hands of the crowds, the multitudes. If they would have said John the Baptist was of God, then the obvious question is, well, then why did you reject him? Uh, and so they knew they, Jesus had them with this question. And so they, they said, well, we're not gonna answer that. They were just silent. And so Jesus then said, well, then neither will I uh, tell you the, by what authority I do these things. Now, this is a funny thing to me because we kind of left off there in 21, 27, where Jesus said, I'm not gonna tell you the authority by which I do these things. But in a way, he's going to tell us the authority by which he does these things by sort of expressing how they, have, they are in the act of and have for really centuries, whether it's the prophets all the way to Jesus, the Jews had rejected the authority of God um, in so many different ways. But one of the things I wanted to kind of show you is how you can track by these parables Jesus tells. He says, I'm not gonna tell you by what authority I do these things, but I'm gonna tell you a couple parables instead. And these parables uh, are going to, in, in a sense, really uh, point to by what authority Jesus does all the things that we're looking at here in Matthew chapter 22. He's gonna continue sort of telling these, uh, these parables by, uh, and, and they're gonna deal with by what authority he does those things. In fact, um, the first parable, if you remember, we saw in chapter 21 last week. Um, let's let's kind of review these. The first, the first couple were in chapter 21. Um, the first one was that, that they rejected the Father's authority, and that was Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. Remember the parable of the two sons that were sent to work? And remember the one son, you know, son, go, go uh, do some work in the field. And the son said, um, I will do it, but he didn't. Then the other son, go and do some work in the field. He says, I'm not going to, but he did. And, you know, Jesus kind of talked about that. Uh, you know, well, which one of the sons was right? Well, the one who went and did the work is the one that, and, and then Jesus was sort of comparing the, the Jews and the religious leaders to those guys that um, said they were gonna do the right thing, but they never really did. But then the Gentiles and the publicans and sinners, they were the ones, the prostitutes, they were the ones who said they don't, weren't gonna do the work, but they actually did. And so they would be in the end saved. And so the first parable there in Matthew 21, 28 through 32, is the parable of the father, you know, the father's authority being challenged. Um, uh, and and that that's, starts to set the precedent. And that brings us to the second parable we looked at last week and we see where they rejected the son's authority. Do you remember that? The parable of the owner of the vineyard. We looked at that last week. Um, Matthew uh, 21, verses 33 through 44. Um, if you remember, they, you know, the, the, the owner of the vineyard sent you know, servants there in Matthew 21. And, uh, and when, when they came, they you know, beat the servants and then killed another servant and stoned another. That's speaking of the prophets of the Old Testament. That's what they did to the prophets. But then the owner there said, well, I'll send my son. They'll, they'll, re they'll respect my son. But then the son came and uh, the, they, they said, let's kill him and let's seize his inheritance. And they killed the son. And so really Jesus is saying, by what authority do I do these things? Well, you've rejected the father's authority and now you're about to reject the son's authority. Jesus being the son of God, they're about to crucify him. And so he's kind of indicting them with these parables. By what authority do I do these things? Well, you've rejected the father's authority. You've reject, you're going to reject the son's authority. But then he's gonna, um, uh, you know, by this time, by the way, as we ended chapter 21, uh, in verse 46, do you see what it says? When they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. They, by this time, they're so mad, they wanna kill him. 
They wanna do Jesus in, just for these first two uh, sort of parables. But what's cool about chapter 22, where we pick up, he's gonna now go into parable number three, and you guessed it, uh, they're gonna, Jesus is gonna show the, the Spirit's authority and how they're gonna reject the invitation of the Spirit in Matthew 22, uh, verses one through 14, the parable of the wedding invitation. And that's the one we're about to look at. Um, so really each one of these parables, if you're gonna realize they're indictments against the Jews for rejecting Jesus, uh, the son, rejecting the father and rejecting the invitation of the Holy Spirit. We'll see that hopefully here in chapter uh, 22. It says in verse one of chapter 22, and Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants saying, tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways one to his farm and another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their cities. Wow, happy wedding day. Uh, uh, now this is, a, some of this is a little strange to us because we don't really do wedding invitations like this. And if people don't come to your kid's wedding, you don't usually go with an army and slay the people that didn't show up. Although you might feel like that sometimes, not recommended. Uh, but, but at the same time, this is a different thing. Um, this is, you know, people that would have been expected to be at the wedding and, he, and you, know, were, you know, he's already killed the fatted calf, if you would, and people are rejecting the king's invitation. Now, the reason we kind of ascribe this to the Spirit's authority is when it comes to the picture of God inviting, this is the king inviting people. Um, and he sends servants to invite people to come to the wedding, but they reject the servants and uh, don't come. And so there's wrath there. Now, when you come to this idea of the invitation of God, one of the things that you know, a Bible student will sort of remember is the uh, work of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is the one that's with you. Remember the, the relationships uh, with um, you know, the Holy Spirit is with you, he's in you, and he's upon you. But before you were even saved, the Holy Spirit was with you, uh, inviting you. And read John 14, read John chapter 16. Those are, you know, sections of scripture that describe how the Holy Spirit is reminding us of truth, and he's really wooing us to the Father. So that's how this little parable sort of links to the Holy Spirit. It's the invitation, the Holy Spirit being with us, and the rejecting of the Holy Spirit, which is kind of interesting. Notice with me a couple things here. In verse five, what was the main thing that kept them from the king's wedding? Or if you and I would say from the Lord himself, uh, from where God wants us. It was there, uh, it says here, um, they went their ways, one to his farm and the other to his merchandise. I just find that interesting. The two things that sort of kept people away from the wedding was the farm, which would speak of your occupation, your, uh, inherit, your income, I should say. Uh, and then the other one is your money or your possessions, your merchandise. People said, yeah, we're not going to the wedding because our, our farm is too important and our possessions are great. So we're not going to the wedding. I think that's an interesting thing that Jesus sort of 
tucks that into this little parable that there's some reasons they really didn't go to the wedding. Their occupation, their possession, often the same reasons we refuse to go to the Lord or, or draw near to the Lord. Um, trying to earn more income or uh, put our relationship with God on a lower priority. Remember, we talked about that on Sunday where we prioritize God when really God should be over all things. So, um, you know, uh, it won't uh, end well for those who reject the invitation of the Holy Spirit. And that's true uh, when it comes to rejecting the invitation of God to come to him and be saved uh, and accept his son. Um, all of these parables speak of the same general truth, but one's more of rejecting the father's authority, the one's rejecting the son's authority, and this one is a, a type or a picture of the rejecting of the Holy Spirit that is with you, uh, tapping you on the shoulder. By the way, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19 says, quench not the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is you know, um, tapping you or reminding you of truth, one of the mistakes you and I can make is to sort of put that fire out, say, yeah, whatever. Uh, it says, quench not the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's something we should be sensitive to. But what happened when they rejected the invitation? Well, verse seven is clear. The king was wroth and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. See, they were actually bad people. They were murderers. They killed the servants that he sent. Just like the Jews killed the prophets that were sent. And just like you and I who've done sinful things, um, you know, we have to remember we're no better than the Jews. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, but the Lord is also righteous and just. And this is where this parable speaks of those two sides. I feel like sometimes the lone guy that's talking about the wrath of God. Two prophecy up updates ago, I spent a whole time talking about the wrath of God. You say, Brett, that sounds like a real encouraging time, talking about God's wrath. But it's, it's amazing to me how um, churches, pastors, preachers, and teachers are so afraid to talk about God's wrath. I think one of the problems is they think it somehow contradicts God's love. But if you really know the story, God's wrath is what makes God's love so amazing. And if you don't understand the wrath of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, you won't even be really that thankful for the salvation that God gives you from his wrath to his compassion and his love and his goodness. Um, you know, when one only teaches the grace of God, people will forsake their relationship with him because they, they don't really know their need to be saved, to be robed in righteousness. They don't see their dirtiness. When you understand God's wrath, you realize, phew, I'm dodging a huge bullet there. Um, but if you don't understand that, you don't even know your need. And, and we're gonna see that even in the rest of this parable. Um, so uh, the king has a wedding, but no one comes. This is first talking about the Jews. But then we, we go and see a whole another kind of component to this parable, starting in verse eight. It says, then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Uh, so they're all, you know, mess, they're all, you know, destroyed. Go, verse nine, ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. Now, now it goes from the neighbors and the, you know, the close people to God, uh, the king, the Jews. Now just go to everybody, uh, anybody with a pulse, invite them to the wedding. Guess who that is? Us, you and I are the ones with the pulse. Anybody, uh, check this out, it's, it's, this cracks me up. Uh, he says, go, anybody, go in verse nine to the highways, as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out to the highways and gathered together as many as they found, both bad and good. 
and the wedding was furnished with guests. <laughs> this is great. People with a pulse were invited. But notice um, if, the, if this is a picture of not the Jews, but the church who's invited, notice in that group, there's both bad and good. That sounds like the church. Uh, it's funny to me, all these uh, people that uh, find themselves brilliant to notice that there's sinners in the church of Jesus Christ. I find it interesting. There's a bunch of sinners there at Athey Creek. And I always say, good eye, man. You must be really, nothing gets by you, right? It's like, wow. Um, yeah, the church is full of good and bad and ugly, uh, I might add. Um, um, and, and the, you know, newsflash, there's, we're all sinners in the church of Jesus Christ. But our one thing we've got is an invitation, good or bad. We were given an invitation to come to the wedding, if you would. Um, it's, it's sad to me to see people who forsake the blessing of the church of Jesus Christ because they see sin in people. And you know, you, you always hear me talk about there's those people that say, oh, I, I just don't like the church because it's full of sinners. And I call them sin sniffers, fault finders, iniquity inquisitors. Uh, you know, they're, they're the people always looking judgmentally at the at other Christians who are, you know, sinning. And I always like to remind, we're all sinners. We all fall short. But good news, we've been invited. But there's a component that, that he's gonna talk about here that is essential. If you try to play the church game and you come to the wedding, but you don't do it correctly, you can find yourself in the same predicament as the people that were just destroyed. What do you mean, Brett? Well, um, good news. Um, you know, when, when, when you and I are sinners in the church, one of the things we have to look forward to is that promised perfection that, that we get. You know, I love 1 John 3, 2. You know, it says, you know, uh, right now, you know, we're, we're beloved of God and, and right now we don't see it clearly what's gonna go on, but it says when, when he shall appear, when, um, when we see him, we will be like him uh, for we shall see him as he is. I look forward to that time in the future, but right now we're not like him. We're really messed up. So we've been invited, both good, bad, and ugly, but then check out what happens in Matthew uh, 22, 11. Let's pick it up, verse 11. It says, and when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not a wedding garment. And he said unto him, friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless, he had nothing to say. Um, then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. What's going on with this? They just invited a bunch of strangers and this poor guy doesn't have a wedding garment. Now, one thing you, you and I kind of missed, the tradition of the day, especially if it was a king, you could be invited to a feast, but if you didn't have the right garments, they would actually give you garments or loan you garments. You'd be covered in a garment that would be acceptable to the wedding. Um, that's kind of an interesting thing we don't know anything about, but you'd be invited to the feast, both poor and wealthy, but uh, uh, the idea is wedding garments would be given out, but the implication here is the king was handing out garments to be worn, but this, this person said, you know what, I don't want that garment. I'm just gonna you know, show up with my own clothes. And so the king in essence is saying, where's the robe I gave you? Where's the garment that um, I gave you? And that's why he would be cast out because of his filth, his sin was exposed. Um, this reminds me, and of course, of, of you know, Isaiah 61 talks about how we are robed in his righteousness, of course. Um, and that's the only way we get to go to the wedding. Those, us, those of us that were strangers on, on the highways, 
uh, with a pulse. We're invited to the wedding, but the way we get in is to wear his clothes and not our own. We need to be robed in righteousness. If we're not robed in righteousness, we're still in our sin and you're gonna be you know, bound up and thrown in a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's why if people say, I think I'm just gonna show up and I don't need Jesus. No, you're gonna show up filthy and rejected. You've gotta have the robe of righteousness. You know, I'm reminded of a, of a, but do you guys remember, it was way back in 2020 when we were in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. I'm reminded of a strange story. Would you keep your finger here and flip over to Isaiah chapter three and four? Uh, if you would, just go back. Do you remember, um, do you remember the bald-headed, scab, stinky women? Huh? That's in the Bible? It sure is. Um, <laughs> and it's this kind of horrific uh, imagery of something that is, is uh, really what I think Jesus is getting at when you show up to the wedding with the wrong garments. Um, what's, what's going on here in Isaiah chapter three? Well, the description of these women is in uh, Isaiah 3, uh, let's start in verse uh, 16. And this is the Lord talking about, you know, the daughters of Zion or Jerusalem. In Isaiah 3, 16, it says, moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty. Now for you that are, um, you know, from public school, haughty is not like she's a hottie. It means, um, <laughs> no, she's, she's, she's haughty, like prideful and arrogant. And it says, uh, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with uh, stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, um, what's that? You know, the stretched forth necks is, uh, you know, speaking of, you know, kind of that pride posture. Um, and uh, wanton eyes, luring, you know, men seductively is kind of the idea. There's an element of seduction that they're trying to do. Um, and it says, uh, walking and um, mincing as they go. What's mincing? Are they mincing meat? Or what are they doing? I don't know. Uh, well, the idea is, uh, it's, it's sort of this, uh, this idea of trying to lure men, uh, you know, seductively. But not only that, check out what they're doing. Mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet. <laughs> um, they would wear these little, uh, like little miniature uh, tambourine symbols, you know, on their feet. So when they walked, it was like a little tingle. I remember um, when I was a kid, there was this girl who would get on the bus. She was a total hippie, like lived in, you know, like big bell bottoms. And, you know, you could smell weed as soon as, you know, you open the bus door uh, from there. It was kind of sad, but this total hippie girl, but she always had bells on the edges of her bell bottom jeans. So when she'd walk into the bus, jingle, jingle, jingle. And it was like, every time I read this in the Bible, I'm like, oh, I know who that is. Uh, um, she had tinkling on her feet. Um, that's what it says here. Um, Therefore, verse 17, the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments um, about their feet and their calls um, of the, uh, uh, and their round tires like the moon. Um, Brad, I'm confused. Uh, the chains, verse 19, and the bracelets and the mufflers. Brad, what does Midas have to do with anything? Um, <laughs> these... These mufflers and spare tires and stuff, uh, we're not going to Les Schwab. We're, we're, we're talking about, um, we're talking about uh, what they were wearing and the kind of clothes and even uh, you know, the girdles and all the stuff that they were trying to make them, themselves look uh, beautiful. They were gonna actually become really um, ugly. Um, 
And so uh, uh, verse 21, the rings, the nose jewels, the changeable suits of apparel, verse 20, the mantles, the wimples. Uh, uh, I'm not gonna go into all this. We did this a couple years ago and, and uh, what these little things were. But it says, um, the glasses, the fine linen, verse 23, the hoods, the veils, and it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, there shall be stink. And instead of a girdle, a rent. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth, a burning instead of beauty. And thy men shall fall by the sword and thy mighty in the war and her gates shall lament and mourn and be desolate and so, shall sit upon the ground. Now, that's a horrible picture for the Jewish women to even try to imagine that. But look at chapter four. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. Um, uh, interesting that these women, instead of turning to the Lord, they're turning to these men uh, and they try to, you know, seven women, because all the men are dying in battle, these seven women will say, marry us. Uh, this is like the first movie in a series called Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, but this, uh, not really. Um, anyway, uh, in that day, verse two, shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. Um, you say, Brad, what's this all about? This whole Isaiah three and four thing. Notice these women are in trouble because of their haughtiness and their pride and, and all this ugliness of sin. And it started out really beautiful and seductive and all this stuff, but it turns out bald, scabbed, stinky. Um, their girdles are popping out. Uh, like, like there's this kind of this, you know, this kind of, Brett, that's, that's graphic imagery of the Bible. Um, but what, what, what's interesting is uh, the righteous branch, which we know that's Jesus ultimately uh, prophesied in the Old Testament, but um, the, instead of saying, we want to you know, be helped by the Lord, they go and say, we will wear our own apparel, you know, we'll buy our own clothes, we'll eat our own bread, but, but we'll just take your name only. Um, now this is where you know, the Old Testament picture here lines up so perfectly. Um, why did these uh, women need a guy in name only? If you're a woman in Old Testament times and you didn't have a husband, uh, your husband was killed in battle, you needed identity, you needed lineage, you needed safety, uh, protection, you needed companionship. Uh, of course, it's funny because seven is the number of completion in the Bible and associated with the church, the seven churches of Asia Minor in the New Testament. These girls didn't want to marry these guys on a normal basis. They wanted to be married on their own terms, even though they stink and they're bald and their girdles are busted out and all this stuff. They say, We're, we don't want your bread, and we don't want your clothes, but we'll take you on in name only. Now this, you say, Brett, this is a horrible story. What is that all about? Well, um, interesting, because we know the Old Testament picture points to a New Testament truth. And the truth is the same thing Jesus is talking about. The guy that shows up to the wedding without a robe of righteousness, there's this ugliness and not willing to take the robe, you're in big trouble. Not willing to eat the bread. Jesus in John 6, 35 said, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. So this picture in the Old Testament, these women, we're not gonna eat your bread and we're not gonna wear your clothes. You know, um, in fact, it's interesting because, um, you know, the clothes that they needed were the same clothes that we need, the robe of righteousness that Isaiah the prophet would talk about. So not to wear his garment. They wouldn't wear his robe. Um, uh, you know, uh, the robe of righteousness, Isaiah 61.10 is where it says, you know, the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks herself with ornaments. 
Um, it's the same kind of picture, still with the wedding and the church is the bride of Christ and we need that robe of righteousness to be in the wedding. So we are the stinky, dirty, uh, sinning strangers off the street uh, in, in, in both stories, um, in the, both uh, the Isaiah account and also Jesus's parable. And we need, if we wanna get in without being in trouble, you gotta have the robe of righteousness. And if, if you're one who's saying, I don't really need Jesus, then you're rejecting the robe. That's why when people say, you know, I, I like to, I think I'm more spiritual. You know, I'm, I'm more of a spiritualist. I'm a spiritual person. Um, I think it was John Christ who did a funny bit on this where it's like, you mean you're gonna show up to heaven at the gates and say, I'm kind of spiritual. And, and, and like hope that's gonna get you in. That's not gonna get you in. Uh, it's just not. Because uh, you're, not, you're not good enough. Uh, none of us are. You need to have the robe of righteousness uh, covering your sin, imputed righteousness through Jesus Christ. So just like the women who wanted to do it on their own terms, people think they can get to heaven with their own righteousness. Um, but God says no over and over and over in the Bible. Here with Jesus' parable, that's the same thing we're seeing. Now let's go back to Matthew 22 because this guy rejected the garment and because of that, he goes in verse 13 to the place of uh, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Uh, by the way, uh, when one of the marks of a person that rejects the robe of righteousness is, is someone who thinks they're gonna be saved by doing good deeds. They think that's somehow the robe of righteousness that they're looking for. If I do enough good deeds, then I'll be robed in righteousness. That's not where the robe comes from. Um, don't forget, you know, we, we've got scriptures that make this super clear that we need to remember, you know. But um, this robe of righteousness Isaiah 61.10 tells us about is, is one that is obviously given. Uh, it's a gift from God. Um, For he hath clothed me with the garment of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. That, it's not something you earn. It's something you've been given. And that's why we rejoice, Isaiah the prophet said. Um, how important that is. And then in the New Testament, it's even more perfectly clear than that. Ephesians 2, but for by grace are you saved um, uh, through faith. And not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Um, do you remember the church in Sardis of the seven churches? Uh, remember what um, you know, Jesus said to them in Revelation 3.1, and he said to the angel in the church of Sardis, write these things that saith, he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou, art, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and you're dead. Do you remember the scabbed women of Isaiah, how they wanted him in name only, but not in garments, in vesture, and they didn't want to eat his bread and wear his clothes? This is kind of like, uh, once again, repeated with the, the, the angel of the church of Sardis, uh, it needs to hear this, right? That you're gonna, you know, you, you, you do good works, but you have a name that you're alive, but only a name, but you're not practically righteous by the robing. You see, the, by the way, the word name there is an uh, interesting Greek word in Revelation 3.1. The, the word is onoma. Uh, does anybody know where that word, like there's another word that might seem kind of funny, but uh, it's linked to that. Does anybody know what it is? Denomination. You guys remember the word denomination? You're like, what denomination are you? Onoma is where that comes from, which is kind of interesting. When Jesus is talking about the church that's dead, they had a name, which is funny because that's what denomination is. Church is its name. Well, you're assembly of God. You're Baptist. You're this or you're that or you're the other. And <clears throat> it's like, you've got a name, but, but Jesus tells the church that's got the name, and says, you're dead. 
You can, you can think you're a good church or people or a person because you have a name that you're alive, but you're really dead. Um, and that's kind of an interesting thing there of Revelation. So these women had the name only, but didn't eat the bread, didn't wear the clothes. Uh, important thing. If you wanna be saved, you gotta be robed in righteousness. You gotta wear his clothes and you gotta eat his bread. <clears throat> and that's what this guy in Matthew 22 is seemingly unwilling to do. So um, watch out for that temptation to be professing religion, claiming to be a Christian, but not truly robed in righteousness. How do you receive that robe and put it on? Uh, remember it says, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, like, how do you put that on? Um, it's to be saved. It's, it's what a, a Christian, who a person who wants to become a Christian must do. You gotta repent of your sin, acknowledge your dirtiness and your sinfulness, and then acknowledge that before God and then confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus, that God raised him from the dead. The work of the cross, <clears throat> Jesus dying on the cross for our sins is the covering. We're robed in righteousness because of that work on the cross, washed in his blood, cleansed, purified. No longer are we bald, stinky women uh, of Isaiah three and four. But that's a horrible analogy. It's the Bible, sorry. Uh, deal, deal with the Lord on that one. Uh, now, by the way, the robe of righteousness, if you're interested, uh, it's linked to the doctrine of atonement, if you're, if you're interested. And, and I love the doctrine of atonement because the, the atonement um, is that which makes it to where you once again have access to God without being ashamed. It's, it's um, I've heard, you know, like we talk about justification, just as if you'd never sin. Well, you can kind of do the same thing with atonement. Atonement is atonement. In other words, you're once again at one with God. Your sin separates you from God, Isaiah 59, one. Um, but the Lord is the one who wants to make atonement for your sins, which uh, means your sins are blotted out and covered and you are robed in righteousness so that you can go and stand before God unashamed. Um, that's this concept of atonement in the Bible, just FYI. Well, so there it is. Um, now, back to Matthew 22, uh, verse 15 is where we left off. It says, um, then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Um, and they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. What are these guys doing? What are they saying? Well, it's interesting because um, it, they're, they're trying to sort of, um, well, these are the Herodians. And by the way, we mentioned this briefly on Sunday, that now there's this three waves of, of religious guys that are gonna come and try to trick Jesus. Uh, and the Herodians are the first group. And remember, they're the ones loyal to Herod. The Jews are saying, let's just be Romans. We talked about that on Sunday. But they, they come with sort of this flattery. In fact, it's, the, um, it's kind of interesting the ESV version of this, I like the way it says it. It says, they sent their dis disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that thou art true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. What does that sound like to, me, to you? It sounds like flattery to me. Uh, and Jesus is gonna see right through this, by the way. Watch out for flattery. I like the old line, um, flatterers are like friends as wolves are like dogs. And it's really true. 
Uh, flatterers look like friends because they're saying really nice things, but they really are just wolves. Um, and, and that's what's going on here. And, and they're, they're actually trying to, you know, soften Jesus up, butter him up and, oh, somebody likes me. I'm gonna say something nice to these guys. Do you think Jesus is gonna fall for it? The flattery? <laughs> um, so, so group one here, as we talked about Sunday, the Herodians, they're coming with flattery. And, um, and um, they're the ones who, by the way, were, um, were some of the worst enemies of the Pharisees. Of the people groups that hated each other, Herodians and Pharisees hated each other more than anybody. But you know what's funny is um, how uh, common enemies can come together when they have a greater enemy. And you see that all the time. So now you see these Herodians sort of rolling with the Pharisees, which is to them, to all the people of that time would have been shocked. Uh, you know, that'd be like, you know, some MAGA Trumpers suddenly uh, arm in arm with Antifa just uh, singing Kumbaya uh, together. You'd be like, what happened? Well, and, and then, but they all hate one common enemy. You'd say, that's insane. Well, that's kind of what you'd see here. The Herodians and the Pharisees, you'd never see them together, but you do with, with their attack on Jesus, a common enemy, which is kind of interesting. So, you know, these guys come sort of uh, trying to soften him up with uh, flattery. So they say in verse 17, um, they say, tell us, uh, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness. <laughs> now, before we hear his answer, uh, I love this. And, and this is something that you say, well, I wish I had that perceptive perception. One of the things the Holy Spirit will do for the believer that you and I can tap into is a thing called discernment. One of the things the Holy Spirit will give you is discernment. And oh, how I pray for discernment. Because people will say stuff to you and, and they'll butter you up just like these Herodians. And sometimes it's hard to see through it. Some people will say stuff and they're just trying to woo you into their trap. Um, and, and that's as common today as it was back in those days. And so I hope that you, you remember to pray, Lord, would you fill me by your spirit with discernment? Uh, that's one of the things that the, the Holy Spirit does. And I, I love that manifestation of the Holy Spirit where the Lord just puts a, a sense in your heart about something. And, and the same thing Jesus has with this discernment, we have that same access through the Holy Spirit. Don't forget that. So I love that. Um, so... Um, you know, trying to uh, divide people away from Christ. They're asking the question, should we pay taxes? If Jesus said, yes, he's our Rodian, and they would reject Jesus. If he said no, the Romans would say a troublemaker and arrest him. Uh, so they think they've got him in a trap. Um, but um, Jesus perceived their wickedness, verse 18, and said, why tempt ye me, you hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, by the way, this is interesting because, um, uh, you know, Jesus is not gonna get really tangled up in their argument, but he's gonna make another point. And this is, this is kind of important. Uh, but he says, you know, verse, uh, verse 19, they brought to him a penny. And then verse 20, he said unto them, whose is the image or this image and superscription? And they say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. And they heard, when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. 
In a way, Jesus brushes them off or dismisses them. Um, it, it's also Jesus saying something of great importance. And, and there's something here that we miss. Um, we always say, render unto Caesar what Caesar's, but we forget the second part and give to the Lord that which is the Lord's. Jesus is saying more than just, yeah, I'm not gonna tell you whether to pay taxes, but if his picture's on the coin, must be his, give it to him. He's, he's, he's really not gonna get into the weeds of the argument of the Herodians versus the Jews uh, and all that stuff, but he is gonna make another point. And it, it has to do with something that we're, we're gonna call dual citizenship, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, it's interesting to me that Jesus, in a way, sort of did say, pay your taxes without saying it. But at the same time, he reminded us that we, uh, we need to give to God that which is God's. Um, our own per personal lives are under the authority of, of, uh, of two things. This is, this is an interesting thing to me. Um, you might just jot these down. Our dual citizenship requires that number one, Christians must and should honor and obey rulers. One of the things the Bible teaches you and me is that we're supposed to obey the laws of the land. Um, in fact, uh, you know, uh, this is something that I, I fear that in a day of great controversy, when people are trying to discern, especially when the government starts pushing limits of, you know, uh, overreach, uh, you know, we, we've touched this uh, kind of for the first time, time in, in at least my lifetime, where even the church, we've had to make decisions and pray about, Lord, do we obey what the so-called government or this group of government officials are saying, or do we not obey them? And this gets kind of tricky. In fact, this first scripture, you can jot all those scriptures down. Romans 13, one through seven, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, 1 Timothy 2, one. These are all reminders that government authority are from God, that is given from God. In fact, keep your finger here and go with me to Romans 13, where uh, let's just review uh, what it says there. In Romans chapter 13, verse one. In Romans 13, one, it says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he that beareth, he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to, uh, to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Um, this is basically Paul the apostle telling the Roman church, pay your taxes. And not only that, the soldiers and the guards, the police officers and the, and the military, if you would, um, they are ministers of God to you, Paul's saying. And so we're told to uh, obey the powers that be. Um, and by the way, if you're a police officer, 
you know, the Bible tells us you are a minister of God. Oh, Brad, I'm a police officer, but the guys I work with, they're not ministers of God. No, but they are. Uh, the powers that be are ordained of God. And, and I don't care how wacko your, your, maybe your co-police officers might be, they're still ordained of God. Because when you think about it, who's Paul talking about here? When, when Paul says, you know, uh, the powers that be are ordained of God, and if you resist that power, you're resisting the ordinance of God. Who's the ultimate power when Paul wrote this? The Romans led by Caesar Nero, the worst leader in the history of the world. Like nobody can argue, well, our, well Brett, we have Biden as a president. Like uh, uh, nobody can argue. Or you might say, well, we had Trump. How am we supposed to follow Trump or Biden or whoever you want to, Obama? Like, it's so funny how we, we, we act like, well, that, that's a horrible leader. But Nero was, you could really make a solid argument that Nero was one of the worst leaders that ever lived. And that, that was the leader when Paul penned Romans 13. That kind of cracks me up. It's almost like the Lord says, yeah, when Paul writes this, I'm gonna just make sure the worst dude that ever lived is gonna be the leader so that nobody has an argument. Now you say, um, Brett, what are you talking about? Well, it says there, you know, uh, for um, he is the minister of God for thee to good. But if you're doing evil, you know, if you're breaking the law, uh, you should be afraid. He's not bearing the sword or the weapon in vain. He's, he's being used by God uh, to be part of the government. Um, which is kind of interesting. So this is something we as Christians, we need to understand. We're supposed to obey the laws of the land and realize the powers that be are given by God. That's an important thing. Now, one of the things that gets tricky though on this, and I could go into those other scriptures uh, if we had more time, but you know, those scriptures, 1 Peter, 1 Timothy, you can read those. But in our dual citizenship, one thing we as Christians also, Christians must honor and obey God as well. You say, well, Brett, what if those two things are in contradiction? Well, that's where it gets tricky, isn't it? Um, I put down there Acts chapter five, uh, verse 29. You know, of course, that's where, um, that's where you know, uh, Peter, James, and John, and those guys, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, you know, we ought to obey God rather than man. What were they trying to tell them? Stop talking about Jesus. Jesus told us to go out in the world and preach the gospel. Told these guys, go into all the world and preach the gospel. The powers that be told them, stop preaching the name of Jesus. Well, those two things were in conflict. And so when it gets down to the laws, when the laws are telling you to do something that are in direct contradiction to what the Bible is telling us to do, then we have to pray about, Lord, is, is this a time where we realize our citizenship in heaven is more important than our citizenship of this earth? So it's kind of an interesting thing. The Bible sort of speaks that there's this dual citizenship that we have. We're supposed to obey the laws of the land. Police officers are of the powers that be. Whether you like them or not, you're supposed to follow them. And that's, that's a good plan, by the way. That's worked pretty good for society up until about three weeks ago in our history. Uh, you know, it's like, it's just in modern times, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing. And sure, there's been corruption in law enforcement uh, in history past, but by and large, you know, especially in the United States, um, it's an amazing thing how um, just a few bad apples have made people sort of, you know, say, defund the police and all this stuff that is a totally horrible idea. Um, but at the same time, we have all these, these amazing men and women who are officers of the law who are willing to take a bullet to save you. And yet people are all nasty about that. Like, that's just not being very smart and understanding not only logic, but not understanding the Bible as it relates to the powers that be. You gotta, gotta follow the Bible. 
Now, here's where it gets kind of interesting uh, for AC Creek. You know, we were told, you know, and, and you know, when we, when we heard about the pandemic of, you know, what, when was that, 2020, I guess, um, you know, and that we were told you can't meet and you can't gather anymore. Or at least, you, you know, there was a, remember it started off with just a kind of a two-week thing or close the doors, you know, it was a short little thing. And we didn't know, is it really a, like the scarlet finger or the bubonic plague or one of the black death types, you know? So we all thought, let's be good, you know, citizens and try our best. And so we initially closed our doors, but after, a, you know, a while, a short while, we we're kind of like, and, and we said from the very beginning, hey, this is not, you know, we're not gonna let this just kind of go on indefinitely because... This is where the Bible says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. That, that's like a Bible mandate that we're supposed to gather together in the name of Jesus. And by the way, in Roman times, church people met illegally. They weren't supposed to meet, but they did. And they, one of the cool things when you go to Rome, make sure you go down in the catacombs because the catacombs is where the church people would go down on the first day of the week and they would find in the tombs there of the catacombs of Rome and they'd meet and worship Jesus, talk about his word, and then they'd come back up and go there. They were doing this because they could get into big trouble legally if they were following and believing in Jesus. The first three centuries, you could, it could cost you your life if you gathered uh, in those days, but they gathered even breaking the law. Why? Because the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. So, um, you know, uh, AC Creek, uh, here's the funny thing. I had, you know, people throw in my face, Brett, you've taught Romans 13 and you've taught, you know, first Peter, uh, you know, chapter, you know, two uh, verses 13 through 17. And look at you, you guys, AC Creek, you're not wearing masks and you're, and you're gathering and you're breaking the law. Here's the problem with that one. Uh, there's so many problems with that. I'll tell you what it is. But the first big one was at that time when we decided to open our doors, do you guys remember it, it was Kate Brown, the governor who was saying, um, you know, you can't meet. And, uh, and we were getting letters, you know, that, that we're gonna be fined and jail time and stuff like that from, from our governor. Um, meanwhile, our president at that time was saying churches should meet. More importantly, do you guys remember at that time, the attorney general of the United States was saying churches need to meet again. So we had the supreme law enforcement officer of the country, the attorney general saying one thing, and we have the governor of the state of Oregon saying another thing. So even in our situation back then, it wasn't us doing civil disobedience. It was us choosing which law enforcement person we were gonna follow. It wasn't even, and as it turns out, uh, the, the reason I kind of liked going, uh, leaning toward the, the attorney general's thing, get back and meet, is because as it turns out, the Constitution of the United States allows you and me to gather with no restrictions from the government. The Constitution says, that's the law, that is the law of the land. So these people that came and said, Pastor Brett, we're leaving AC Creek because you're not obeying the laws of the land. My argument was, we're the ones who are obeying the laws of the land and Kate Brown is the one who's breaking the laws of the land. And they didn't get that. They left angrily and they're probably off in the desert wearing a mask right now somewhere. <laughs> um, I'm just saying, you know, um, and it's okay if you want to wear a mask. That's great. I understand there's maybe some people in circumstances where that's, uh, but, but listen, uh, it, it, it was heartbreaking for me to see people come with that because as it turns out, uh, you know, the, um, the, the state of Oregon had to lay off because uh, they were wrong and they were proven wrong. And uh, there's still states that are paying damages to churches uh, all around the country because they made them, uh, they were trying to get them to stop meeting. Why do I go into all this? Because I think, 
I don't want you to think that Athey Creek just flippantly, and I, and I think there's some churches that just flippantly opened their doors and said, you're we're whatever the government. Um, that wasn't our attitude at all. I want you to know that. It was prayerful, thoughtful. Um, we're, gonna, we're gonna obey the laws of the land. We're gonna do what the law tells us to do as long as it, A, doesn't go against what the Bible tells us to do. Um, and, and, um, and that's important. Um, and also, uh, you know, Another thing that's kind of important is, is, is if, it, if, if it's not honoring and obeying God, there's a time where you have to just kind of say, yeah, we're not gonna do that. Um, and, and that's where it gets tricky. And, and I hope, the reason I, I go into this, maybe spend too much time on this tonight, is I sense that, that what we dealt with in 2020 and, and all that and the closures and the, all that, I think that was just a precursor of coming attractions. I think that as Christians, we're gonna face these decisions um, in the future. And one of the things that really bummed me out in the last thing is how divided the church was over the whole enchilada. When really that should have been when the church kind of gathered together and said, let's pray through this, let's pray, let's, let's let our, our governing elders and our pastors and our leaders kind of help, help lead us. But you know, that's not our culture. You're not the boss of me, I'm not my own boss. That's the world we live in today. No, no submitting to authority. You know, it's kind of funny how that's the way the world is today. But might I just suggest that we be really careful the next time because I think that was an easy one. I think there's some harder ones coming where we're gonna have to make decisions. Are we gonna do what the Bible says or are we gonna do what man tells us to do? And there are things in our future that could very soon uh, turn to where it might cost us a little more than it did before. It really didn't cost us much the last time. It could have, there were threats of that, but it, it actually didn't. Um, but the, the thing I'd like to avoid is having the, the people that are just kind of so coarse and saying, yeah, whatever government, uh, we're, we're, you know, we can do whatever we want. Well, the Bible actually doesn't teach that. We're supposed to obey the government right up until it tells us to do something exactly opposite of the Bible. I hope you understand that. That's an important deal. Even if you don't like it. Uh, you, you know, like even in this case, paying taxes to Rome would have been a real bummer. How would you like to be a Jew living in Jerusalem, giving money to the very group of people that slaughtered millions of you? Um, that's what they were asked to do. That's why it was so controversial to pay taxes to the Roman government. I wonder, they were like, we don't wanna pay taxes. I, I get it. But isn't it funny how the Bible landed, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, what Jesus said, and then Paul says here in Romans 13, uh, pay tribute, give your money to, to that. So we've got this dual citizenship thing we have to juggle. But when it gets down to it, the first and priority is Christians must honor and obey God. That's the most important thing. Well, by the way, you know, uh, if you wanna read about that, people who face those kinds of questions, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. How many of you guys have read that before, Fox's Book of Martyrs? Man, I think uh, it's not a, you won't feel like, yes, this is an awesome book. You'll be depressed, actually, uh, when you read it because they're true stories of martyred Christians. And, and one of the things you'll realize is these are people that had to make that decision. True stories that are, many of them, overreachingly uh, supernatural in nature. How God protected them and, uh, you know, um, their stories. I love the story of the, um, the, the, the Christians uh, that the Romans were, uh, you know, gathering up and slaughtering and killing and stuff. But there was a group of, of Christians who were, um, apprehended by the Romans. And it was at that season where they would just say, all you have to do is say Caesar is Lord instead of Jesus is Lord. If you say Caesar is Lord, then you're good. You're a Roman citizen and we count you as good. But if you're not willing to say Caesar is Lord, um, then you could die. 
And that was a big stretch of time in, in history. And there was a group of men that were gathered and they said, say Caesar's Lord, but they wouldn't. So they took 52 men and they took them out in the wilderness area where there was this frozen lake, a lake was frozen over. They stripped all the men naked and they made them go out into the middle of the lake, the frozen lake, and just made them stand there naked. Said, all you have to do is say Caesar is Lord, and then you can come off the lake and you can stand by this bonfire and we got some food and some hot beverages and it's all ready to go. All you have to do is come off the lake. Well, the Romans thought this will be great. This will be the way to get these men just to say Caesar's Lord, because they're gonna cave, freezing their feet and bodies as they're, well, as it turns out, these men huddled out in the middle of the lake, naked, shivering, and sang 52 brave soldiers of the Lord, 52 brave soldiers of the Lord. And they say, the Romans were stunned. These men just stayed out there hour after hour. Um, and they, they didn't really know what to do because they thought for sure somebody would cave and, and you know, that maybe a snowball effect or whatever. But as they, they were there, finally one guy from the singing group out there, 52 brave soldiers, one guy, he said, I'm, I'm dying, I'm dying. And he ran out and he warmed himself by the fire and he said, Caesar's Lord. And there was a kind of a silence and they warmed the guy and gave him his clothes. And, and then the guys out in the lake started singing, 51 brave soldiers of the Lord, 51 brave soldiers of the Lord. Well, so moved was one of the Roman soldiers in that group. He stripped himself of his Roman apparel and ran out there and they sang 52 brave soldiers of the Lord. Can you imagine? That's a story that goes down in history is, and those guys all died, all 52 of them died on the lake that night for their faith in Christ. That's the kind of stuff that, where you say, I'm not gonna say Caesar's Lord because that would be denying my faith that Jesus is Lord. Fox's Book of Martyrs has all kinds of stories of our brothers and sisters through the ages uh, who were submitted to God more than the, the laws of the world. So kind of a tricky thing. I think we're, we might be facing some of that kind of stuff later on down the way, uh, who knows how soon. But anyway, back to our, uh, our text here, Jesus in verse 21 says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and the things which are God's or belong to God, to God. That's the second half of this that people forget. They, they talk about render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, we like that part, but we forget that we're supposed to give to God that was God. And so they, you know, he asked for a coin. They tossed him one of these. Um, this is, this is the, the coin of that time period that they probably you know, gave to Jesus. And this is a, you know, an, an image of Caesar Augustus um, there uh, from Rome. And he, he looks at the, this says, you know, who's, whose image is on that? Which is kind of interesting because remember, Jesus has two components to his answer. He says, render unto to Caesar what is Caesar's because his image is on it. Question, um, whose image is, do we have as people? We have God's image. See, this is kind of where you, you kind of get the two parts. Remember Genesis chapter one, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our uh, image after our likeness. Um, and this is, this is really um, the, the thing that we're, we're actually seeing, Jesus give the AB. Well, whose image is on that? Caesar's. Well, whose image is on us? And so we are to give our lives over to God because God's image is on us. I think there's kind of a, a reciprocal effect on this one. So um, by the way, sin has marred the image of God that's on us, but it's restored through Christ. Ephesians 4.24 it says, put ye on the new man, which after God is created, uh, is, is created in righteousness and true holiness. 
Colossians 3, 10 through 11. It says, and I've put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, uh, where there is neither gr- uh, Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, uh, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. So um, there's more to Jesus here than just replying to the Herodians. He gives us some weighty stuff about, you know, give to God that which is God. That means your life, your image is on God's image is on you. So that's give to God what is God's. That's what he's saying there. And so radical was he. Look at, I love verse, uh, what does it say there in verse 22? Um, it says, in all things whatsoever um, uh, ye shall, um, pardon me, I'm on the wrong plate here. Oh yeah, there it is. Um, verse 22, when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. They're all like, Wow. Uh, they're marveling. Don't you wish you could kind of hear what they were thinking, these Herodians? We really have him. And then he said these wise words that didn't trap him, but he was speaking radical truth. They're just marveling. The Herodians are, you know, strike and a miss. Uh, and now that brings us to the Sadducees. Uh, quickly, verse 23. The same day came to him the Sadducees, um, which say that there is no resurrection and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, if a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there, uh, there were with us seven uh, brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased. And having no issue, uh, he uh, left his wife unto his brother, likewise the second also, and the third unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Wow, happy story. Verse 28, therefore in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. And Jesus answered and said unto them, you do err, not knowing the scripture nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Now you say, what's this all about? Well, we talked about this a little bit on Sunday, but you know, basically the group number two, the Sadducees, remember they don't believe in the resurrection, and that's why they're sad, you see, okay? Um, and they also don't believe in angels, by the way. So it's funny that Jesus brings up the angels. Sadducees don't believe in angels or spirits. Um, they only believe the Torah or the, what we would call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Um, they were sort of liberal theologians of the day, these Sadducees. But um, <laughs> basically, you know, um, verse 24 is what is talking about something called the Leverite um, marriage. And that's defined in Deuteronomy 25, verse five. And that's, you know, about if a brother dies, you know, uh, the husband's brother shall, uh, you know, uh, take the wife and they shall become like a family and perform like a a husband to her. So like the Bible um, was designing a rule to save and care for women rather than letting them die alone, um, which is a whole nother discussion. But the Leverite marriage is what they're tapping into this topic. And basically verses 25 through 28, 
um, they create this false dilemma. Well, this guy, you know, this, this woman would be married to seven guys in heaven. So which one is it? Is she married or is she not married? And that was the false dilemma. Um, and by the way, Satan uses that trick all the time. Is it this or that? But sometimes it's none of the above. And that's kind of what Jesus is dealing with. Um, so who's the woman gonna be married to? If Jesus said all of them, polygamy. Um, if Jesus said none of them, he was nullifying marriage altogether. So he, they think they've got him, but he says, you do error. Uh, there are times, Jesus said it, so there are times where maybe you need to say, you're making a mistake. You make a mistake. But that's not very nice. Well, Jesus said it right here. He said, you do err. And he even asks, you know, he says, you do err, not knowing the scripture nor the power of God. Like sometimes it's okay, depending on the right time, you have to ask the Lord to give you discernment when to use this. Sometimes it's right to say, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and you don't know the Bible. Uh, and that's what Jesus says here. But he, basically, we talked about this on Sunday. The relationships in heaven are gonna be greater than the relationships we have on earth. Marriage is an earthly relationship that will last till death do us part. That's why we say that in weddings. Because death, there's no longer marriage after death. But there, if you're worried about that, don't be, our relationships in heaven are gonna be a thousand times better than any relationship we have in this earth. That's uh, what the Bible teaches. Um, now, I love this argument that he makes about the resurrection because uh, Jesus not only talks about, like he's like, forget about the marriage thing that you guys are talking about, but concerning the resurrection, he basically says, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I not, not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He, he confounds them. Why does God say, I am the God? If uh, He says, he's not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. Why? Because after death, you raise from the dead. You know, when Jesus says this, this gives me comfort because some of you might in a quiet moment of doubt, lacking of faith, you might say, man, when you kick the bucket, are you really gonna come back? Like, does your soul live on? Will you really go to heaven or hell? Is there life after death? And people question that. But this is where Jesus makes it really clear and says, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. That's why he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they are alive and well, just not on this earth any longer. So he's the God of the resurrection, the God of the living. Um, and by the way, Jesus was quoting there from um, Exodus, um, by the way, Exodus chapter three, verse six. Uh, well, quickly, verse 33. Now, um, it says, when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. So, so strike and a miss. Swing and a miss. You know, you got the Herodians, you got the Sadducees, uh, and now the Pharisees as we wrap this up. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had said, uh, that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So we looked at this, uh, you know, uh, this group of Pharisees, they were the legalists. So no wonder they get a lawyer of a Pharisee to ask a question about the law. But um, this weekend, we covered this last Sunday and Saturday. If you missed it, we covered this whole, this is an important section. But um, the question, you know, why do we love God? Well, 1 John 4, 19, we love him because what? He first loved us. And that's the key here. The legalist spends a life, 
you know, hid critical and judgmental of others instead of loving. Uh, but we don't love because of the law. We love because, uh, by the way, the law brings death. We love because God first loved us. So when, the way you love God is to realize how much he loves us. And we talked all about that. You know, what a key that is. Um, uh, in his book, Serving God, Ben Patterson tells a story that I like. Um, it goes like this. Once upon a time, there's a woman who was married to a perfectionist husband. Uh, and no matter what his wife did for him, he, it was never enough. He was never really satisfied. At the beginning of each day, he'd make out a big list of chores for her to do. And at the end of each day, um, he would scrutinize the list to make sure she, he'd, she'd done everything that she was supposed to do. And the best compliment she ever received was a disinterested grunt um, if she finished her list. And she grew to hate her husband because of this. Um, and then when he died unexpectedly, she was embarrassed to admit to herself, but she was actually relieved. Within a year of her husband's death, she met a warm and loving man who was not, not anything like her former husband, everything he was not. Uh, they fell deeply in love. And um, with each day, every day they spent together, it seemed better than the day before. One afternoon, she was cleaning out boxes in the attic and a crumpled up piece of paper fell out of the, the, one of the boxes and it caught her eye. It was one of the old chore lists that her first husband used to make out for her. And in spite of her chagrin, um, she couldn't help but reading the list again. And to her shock and amazement, she discovered that without even thinking about it, she was doing for her new husband all the things she used to hate to do for her old husband her new husband never once suggested that she do any of those things, but she was doing them anyway because she loved him. And that's the little parable that, that really illustrates that's why you and I as Christians do what we do. Um, we love him because he first loved us. Um, and if you ever think of the Christian life as nothing more than a list of thou shalt nots or thou shalt, um, that's not what Jesus ever intended. Um, but he came to put an end of lists and those kinds of things. That's why he said, we're no longer under the law. Remember the 613 laws? We're no longer under those, those laws and those lists. But the new law is love. He came with love. Love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the, uh, upon this hangs the whole thing. Um, so this is a great, great thing. Uh, why do we do what we do? We do it because of what Jesus did for us. Well, verse 41 while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Now, now, this is great. So the Pharisees asked a stupid question. Jesus gave them a glorious answer. Now Jesus is gonna ask them a little question. And, and this is great, because he, he's talking about the Christ, which means the Messiah. You know, the Messiah. But he, Jesus, of course, knows that it's him, but he's sort of saying, you know the Christ who's supposed to come? And the Pharisees are like, yeah, yeah, He's gonna ask a question about that. What think ye of the Christ, verse 42, whose son is he? And they said unto him, the son of David. And then he said unto them, verse 43, how then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? Now you say, Brett, I don't get that. Well, it has to do with Judaism and the way that they would say stuff. 
But you know, Jesus is mentioning Psalm 110 verse one. You'll notice in your margin, Jesus is asking the question from Psalm 110 verse one, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemy thy footstool. Even the Jews knew, the Pharisees knew, this is talking about the coming Messiah, the Christos, the Messiah. And they knew that he would be son of David. That's why people call Jesus thou son of David. They're acknowledging he's, that he's the Christ by saying that. But, but the, the Pharisees who thought they knew everything are like, you're not the Christ because Jesus was claiming to be the Christ. Um, but then he says, well, well, tell me the answer to this. Then how is it that David calls his son Lord? Because that's something you would have never done as a Jew. How is it that the Psalm 110 says, my Lord, uh, you know, says unto my Lord. How, how is that even possible? You and I know the answer because Jesus is the son of David. But is Jesus greater than David? Of course he is, because he's 100% God and 100% man. Um, and Jesus is greater than his father, David. The Jews didn't have the answer to that. Uh, he, he knew the stumping question, and this would have freaked them out. What are we gonna say? Um, they couldn't answer. It was actually a contradiction in their own theology that Jesus knew. And I bet you Jesus had about a thousand more of these if he wanted to. But look what happens. It says in verse 46, and no man was able to answer him a word neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> I love that. Well, there it is. Uh, chapter 23, next week, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this uh, passage and uh, how thankful we are. We serve a, a Lord that is um, wiser. Uh, your thoughts are wiser than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. And uh, these men that thought they could sort of trip Jesus up um, what, a, what a foolish endeavor. Uh, but Lord, I pray that we would always find the answers in your son, Jesus. And may we walk with you and love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Um, having covered this chapter, may we meditate on your word day and night and that bring forth good fruit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.